so we're in the middle of a sermon series. Uh, we're going to be reading the scripture a little bit later in the sermon. Uh, the sermon series is looking at the life of Moses, the story of Exodus, as it relates to the person of Jesus. So I'm making an argument. Uh, I'm not, I, like I didn't come up with this, right? Biblical scholars, some of them, uh, make the argument. They don't all agree, and you might not agree, right? The argument is something like this. The author of the Gospel of Matthew intentionally wants to frame the life of Jesus to show him to be Moses 2.0. Matthew's audience are predominantly Jews in the first century, committed to Moses. Moses is their number one dude. And Matthew's trying to suggest, yeah, Moses was great, but remember the Messiah, the one we're waiting for? That guy is actually Jesus, right? So come on board unto our new early Christian movement, Jews, right? So he's framing Jesus in light of Moses. And the way he does that is we don't get a lot of detail about Jesus' life, not as much as I would like. We know almost nothing about when he was a child or growing up. We start to hear about him when he's about age 30. We get some details over those three years of his ministry, and then he dies, and even in those three years, we get scant detail. We get moments of healing, right? We get moments with his disciples or with his mother, but it's not a lot. So the writers of the Gospels choose these moments wisely. They make them, they, they want to highlight certain elements. And part of what Matthew highlights in the life of Christ is framing him in light of Moses, right? Uh, so last week, we talked about how, look at Moses' birth, under duress, in Egypt, a slave. The Pharaoh is asking midwives to kill all Hebrew babies that are born, and the women thwart Pharaoh. And so Moses is put in a reed basket and put down the Nile, and then Pharaoh's own daughter finds him, and Moses grows up in the house of Pharaoh, spared. Jesus is born at a time when Herod is killing male children, two years and younger. See the parallel? And in fact, it's magi who thwart Herod's command, come back and tell me where Jesus is so I can go worship him, namely kill him. And they don't. They go home by a different route and they thwart Herod, right? I want to look at another parallel that gets framed in the book of Matthew between the Exodus story and Jesus, right? Because Part of what I want us to think about, part of the point I'm going to make over and over in the sermon series is the power of narrative, the power of story. Human beings are storytelling people. We cannot make sense of our lives without them. We tell stories. Stories tell us where we come from. Stories tell us who we belong to. Stories tell us what our core values are supposed to be. Stories and narrative help us understand what, what's marriage supposed to be about, what's childbearing supposed to be about. Stories tell us where we're headed, what our future is looking like, what, what does it mean to have purpose, what, is, what am I here for, what does the good life look like. All of these fundamental human questions that we care about require some large, some grand narrative. And I'm going to suggest as Christians, we have said yes, or we're trying to say yes, uh, we, to a greater or lesser extent, we're trying to say yes to the story of God. We're trying to frame our lives in terms of the story of God. Where do we come from? We're children of God, born in selfless love. Where are we going? We're going to this future where the lion and the lamb will lay down and the sword will be turned into the plowshare, and we're going to have a feast with every nation, tribe, and tongue present. 
joy and love and every tear wiped from our eyes, right? We know where we come from. We know where we're going. And now we, as people of Christ, we know what we're supposed to be about. Our lives are supposed to be about. We know what our marriages are supposed to be about. We know what relationships are supposed to look like. We have a sense of a calling now because we have a grand narrative. We have a story that helps shape it, right? But most of the time, I live my life according to other stories, right? So... Um, a lot of times I'm evaluating myself by stories in my head that are things like um, how smart am I, how productive am I, how much money do I make, uh, who listens to me or not, do people find me attractive or not, right? Like I have all these stories that say what matters, Joe, is what people think of you. What matters, Joe, is the amount of power that you've accumulated. What matters, Joe, is that you have control over your life or your finances or whatever it is. And those are the stories that guide my decisions. They guide my values. They lead to my, my relationships and my behavior. And none of those have to do with the story of God. Like, how do I recognize the stories I'm telling myself and replace them with a better story, a better narrative, right? And I could give you lots of examples, but all day long, your brain is telling you stories all day long about what matters, who's doing what right or wrong, who's to blame for my anxiety or my anger. We're telling ourselves stories. If you can simply learn how to reframe, it makes like, I'll give an example. Uh, my children, uh, they struggle in school, they don't do their homework, whatever it might be, right? My immediate frame of that is they don't have any work ethic, right? So this is my immediate way I frame it. It's laziness, it's rebellion, but Kelly is so much better at getting to the bottom. Like, like something's going on below that, I think. And often it's like this big assignment makes them feel overwhelmed, makes, produces anxiety. And when they feel anxiety, they want to like, ooh, I, just, I don't want to feel that, so I'd rather like play Minecraft. By reframing it for me, it helps figure out how to solve the problem. Because her story is closer to the truth than my story. My kids aren't lazy. They're often... Fearful. Anxiety grips them when it comes to these larger things. How do I help them deal with that anxiety? By reframing it, I can solve the problem. It's the same way I would want to reframe even the most evil acts committed at the U University of Idaho. I want to reframe it as to say uh, someone is not worth saving, gross, evil, despicable, and I want to say my heart breaks for someone so lost, so filled with hate and violence that they would do something like that. If I can reframe it, my heart softens. I just tell a slightly different story, right? Okay, we're telling ourselves stories. That's how we make sense of everything in our lives is through stories that we're telling. They don't like me, they think I'm stupid, I'm no good, I can't do anything, I can't get anything right, like those negative stories. How do I say no? I'm part of a different story. I, I'm part of the story of God, right? That means I'm framing things in terms of love and grace and faith and patience, and right? We frame it a little differently. We didn't get a Bible that was filled with laws and rules. We got a Bible filled with stories. And the story of the Exodus, the story that Moses undergoes, is very similar. There's, Matthew's framing the story of Jesus similar to that that Exodus story, right? There's these parallels that I think we can learn from and we can grow from. I'm going to read a little bit of scripture. So pinch yourself, pull out some leg hair, 
It's important. Pay attention. Do whatever you got to do, right? So this comes from Exodus 14, verses 5 through 16. Now, the context here is uh, Israel was in Egypt. They became slaves. Moses fled uh, after killing one of the Egyptians, and God has called Moses back. Moses is like, okay. He heads back to Egypt, is like, let my people go. The Pharaoh's like, I'm not going to do that. And then you get all of the stuff, the Nile River with the frogs and the gross bugs and the boils. And I, like, I'd have given up five plagues ago. But not Pharaoh, right? He's very stubborn. But eventually, eventually Pharaoh says, fine. Get out of here, slaves. Get out of here, Israelites. You go. So Moses leads them into the desert. But, so this is where this is happening. But I want you to picture this for just a minute. Where are we going to go? <laughs> like, if you're Israel, we have no military. We have no government. We have no real resources. We've been slaves for generations. So now we're free in the middle of a desert. Like, what are we going to do, right? Okay, so we'll read. When Egypt's king was told that the people, the Israelites, had run off, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. They said, what have we done letting the Israelites go free from slavery? So he sent for his chariot and took his army with him. He took 600 elite chariots and all of Egypt's other chariots with captains on all of them. The Lord made Pharaoh, Egypt's king, stubborn, and he chased the Israelites who were leaving confidently. So now Israel is free and they're moving out, but what they don't realize at this point is like Pharaoh's changed his mind and he's coming barreling down with his army. The Egyptians, including all of Pharaoh's horse-drawn chariots, his cavalry and his army, chased them and caught up with them as they were camped by the sea. As Pharaoh drew closer, the Israelites looked back and saw the Egyptians marching toward them. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, weren't there enough graves in Egypt that you took us away to die here in the desert? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt like this? Didn't we tell you the same thing in Egypt? Leave us alone. Let us work for the Egyptians as slaves. It would have been better for us to work for the Egyptians than to die here in the desert. But Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand your ground and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You just keep still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to get moving. As for you, lift your shepherd's rod, stretch out your hand over the sea, and split it in two so that the Israelites can go into the sea on dry ground. And of course, you know the rest of the story. That's exactly what happens. And the Israelites uh, move through the waters. Okay, we'll put a pin in that. We're going to come back to it. I want to read a section of Matthew now, the Gospel of Matthew. So we moved away from the Old Testament all the way to now uh, the early ministry of Jesus, Matthew chapter 3. And I'm going to read starting at verse 13. At that time, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan River so that John the Baptist would baptize him. John tried to stop Jesus and said, I need to be baptized by you, yet you come to me. Jesus answered, allow me to be baptized now. This is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. So John agreed to baptize Jesus. When Jesus was baptized, he immediately came up out of the water. Heaven was opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God coming down like a dove and resting on him. 
A voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I dearly love. I find happiness in him. The next verse right after this, the spirit of the Lord leads Jesus into the desert to be tempted for 40 days. We're going to talk about that next Sunday. Because Israel goes through the waters and across the Red Sea and then wanders for how long? 40 years in the desert, correct? Through the water, into the wandering. Jesus goes into the water and then immediately is tempted for 40 days in the desert. So I'm suggesting that these parallels are not arbitrary, that Matthew's not highlighting this accidentally, right? How do the people of Israel become the people of God? It's through the water. How do Christians become the people of God? It's through the water. But the story itself is powerful. I want you to picture the Israelites. They've just left. They've been slaves forever. They stand at a body of water they cannot possibly cross, and behind them is the most powerful army in that whole area that they've ever experienced with all the chariots. There is no winning. There is no winning. And what does Israel say? They say, let's just go back. Slavery is better. Let's go back. It would be better for us to die there than out here in the middle of nowhere. When the sea parts, I can't imagine that decision being much easier. We'll cross the ocean to where? To what homes? To what people? To what land? To nothing. To like faith. To hopefully something's on the other side. So Israel has a choice. Moses has a choice. We turn back and we stay the people of Pharaoh or we go through the water and we become the people of God. But make no mistake, that's not an obvious choice. It's not a choice that gets echoed in the Bible and it's not something that makes any sense at all. It's like becoming the people of God requires this incredible step of faith. Like God's going to provide on the other side. We don't know how, but somehow. We don't know how God's going to do it, but, we, but we're not going to be the people of Pharaoh anymore. Now, I want you to think about Jesus. Uh, you realize that Jesus could have chosen lots of stories, lots of ways that, Je like, Jesus could have been a Pharisee. Jesus could have taken the, the way of Rome. Jesus could have embedded himself in some other story about business, about entrepreneurship, about money, about power, about fame. Jesus could have done any of that. And instead, he chooses to go to the weirdo who wears camel hair and eats locusts and honey, like literally the weirdo, the wackadoo down at the waters, John the Baptist. And Jesus is like, that's where I'm going. That, this is my story. Right? My story is with like the Essenes, these desert people, these like ascetic monks, right? That's the, like many biblical scholars would have framed John the Baptist as this group that's like pretty committed but kind of extreme, outcasts. And so Jesus goes and is baptized in the waters and accepts God's call. This is like, this, the baptism is like, yes, becoming the people of God, yes. You are the Lord of my life. Yes, my story now gets embedded in the story of God. Israel has to do it through the water, and we too, baptism as a sacrament, as like this wonderful symbol where I am drowned in the water, I come up a new creation, a child of God, embracing my story, my heritage, my community, my legacy, 
This is who I am now, a Christian. That's baptism. That's what Jesus does. But he could have embedded himself in all kinds of stories in the first century. But he, he goes the road of no fame, no power, no money. Right? The road that says, whatever happens through me, it will be through God. Because I couldn't do it on my own. Israel could turn back and become the people of Pharaoh and embed their story in Egypt. Or they can take this incredible step of faith through parted waters to become the people of God on the other side, having no idea what that's going to look like. But whatever happens, it's going to be because God's done it. We can't do it. We're a fledgling slave people. Okay. So now I want you to think about your life. And this, I'm going to say something, and I'm going to make it clear from the beginning. I say this with no judgment. This is not about judgment. I'm going to try to reframe it. Reframe it, the story. We're going to give a different story, right? Um, every single one of us is at a different place in the way in which we trust God, in the way in which we want to embed ourselves really radically in the story of God, right? We're all at a different place. Some of us are like, I don't know God exists. I'm not sure I trust God at all. Some of us are like angry with God, or some of us are like, oh, no, I'm Christian. But when you really looked at your life, how much of what you do is really about risk or faith, right? The radical call that God might place on our lives regarding love, hospitality, generosity, right? We're all at a different place. I'm not here to judge anyone in terms of like, and if you aren't 100% in, there's something wrong with you. No, it means you're human. I want to frame it like this. God is offering each one of us a gift right this moment to affirm our baptism vows, to affirm the power of baptism that says you are no longer your own, you are God's. You, are no, you no longer belong to the story of America or the story of power or violence or any of that. You belong to the story of God. God is offering us a chance to say yes one more time to go 5% more in terms of our faith, in terms of our commitment, in terms of our devotion to Christ. We have that opportunity right now. So it's not about judgment. It's about a gift. Because when we say no, that means I leave this place and I start telling myself all kinds of cockamamie stories that make me feel bad about myself, inadequate, less than. But I don't want any of that. I want to be set free. I want God to set me free. So that instead, I'm embedded in the story of God that tells me I'm a child of God, something other than that. That I can frame my whole life and all of my relationships in terms of God's love and God's grace. So the challenge is, we stand at the precipice where we can go through the water or we can turn back. Stay safe, comfortable in my patterns, my habits, right? Watching my three episodes of Netflix a night, drinking my two glasses of wine, doing this, doing that. You, the patterns we fall into, the way in which our lives just get structured as to never be interrupted. Or we can go forward into the unknown, into this crazy adventure that God calls us to, this crazy journey that we have no idea, right? Like could our theological imaginations just explode to say, I'm going to say yes to God's story this moment. I'm going to give more of myself to her. I'm going to risk more, give more, right? Love more, serve more. Can, I, can we do that as a people? Because it's not about judgment. It's about a gift. And most of the time I say no to it because I'm scared, because it would mess my life up, because it would be inconvenient. What would it be like to say yes? Let's pray. Lord, 
you want to take us on an incredible journey of faith, one that is uncertain, one that is unpredictable, one that is dynamic, and we don't want it. The shallow, scared, afraid, angry part of us doesn't want it. We want to stay stuck. We want to stay the people of Egypt. We want to embed ourselves in the story of Rome, not the story of John the Baptist. And my prayer is that you would break through, that you would set us free, that you would give us enough faith to accept your gift, and we would take the uncertain, unpredictable, risky journey of faith that you call us to. Who knows where it might lead? But we'll be free, and we'll be living fully into your story. So give us the grace. Give us the courage and give us the faith to do that this day. Amen. If you would please.